You're listening to High Temperature Times, the hottest refractory podcast on the market. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I'm an application specialist with Harbison Walker International. I feel like we've kicked off this summer with some crazy heat, so it seemed only fitting that we bring the heat to our podcast topics too. But how hot can we go? I dare say I've seen my own max use temperature being outside in near 100 degree weather with this humidity. But what's the max use temperature on refractory materials? It's a tricky question with some challenging nuances. So this month, I'm talking with application specialist Ryan McDonald to go through some of those nuances and get to the bottom of it. But before we get into that, let's cool off by diving into our technical marketing inbox. If you've got a question for us, reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com and use the subject line podcast to have your question featured right here. We love getting these questions and I love answering them. This month's question comes from Jeremy Hanley asking, why is it so difficult to get tactical data sheets, dry out information, and mixing instructions for your products? Well, I'm going to apologize to you in advance for turning our technical marketing inbox section into an advertisement, but it's for the good of the people. At least that's what I tell myself. But anyways, let's get on with the answer or better yet, a solution. It can be frustrating. I know. We hear you. In fact, we took steps to help with that. Sign up for an account to our business portal at businessportal.thinkhwi.com and you'll have access to all the data sheets you need. It has your product data search, heat transfer web app access, and a list uh, slash map of HWI's contractor installer network. In fact, we can get right into the next step and let you use those credentials on HWI's mobile tools app to access all of those resources on the go straight from your mobile phone. Think of the business portal as your at-the-desk homepage for everything refractory resources, while the mobile tool is an extension of that, giving you branding information, water additions and mix timers, brick calculator, and even the HWI refractory handbook all in the palm of your hand. So sign up to HWI's business portal and rest your weary head because we've got all the data you need. Thanks, Jeremy, for giving me the opportunity to bring this resource onto the podcast, hopefully making everyone's life just a little less stressful. All right, I'm feeling refreshed and geared up for more. We've got Ryan McDonald in the hot seat today. Welcome, Ryan. Hi, Griffin. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, my name is Ryan McDonald, and I'm an application specialist for HWI. Um, I've been with HWI just over a year now, um, and I specialize in a wide variety of applications, um, such as incineration, uh, the pulp and paper market, and then even some space launch and landing over my first year, I've been traveling around a lot and getting a good foundation in almost every industrial market that we serve. Um, that's a really cool part of HWI because I can now use and apply information from other markets, the markets that I am in charge of and, and can focus on. Thanks, Ryan. You know, data sheets can sometimes be confusing. They have a lot of information on them, ranging from modules to rupture, to cold crush strength, to density, sometimes abrasion, and so on and so forth. Today, we're talking about something that is somewhat frustratingly not on every data sheet. That's max use temperature. It's on every monolithic data sheet, but generally it's not on brick data sheets. Let's start with the monos. Ryan, how is max use temperature defined for monos? Yeah, Griffin. Um, so monolithic max temperature is measured using the ASTM standard um, C401. Pretty much this is done by measuring the permanent linear change or PLC of the monolithic material. PLC is a non-reversible expansion or contraction of the monolithic due to mineralogical phase changes. The max temperature of the monolithic is defined when the monolithic exceeds plus or minus 1.5% PLC after held at a certain temperature for five hours. Yeah, you know, like bricks are fully fired and densified before they leave the plant. Monos, on the other hand, have to densify during the dryout process. Like, 
let's put that in perspective. Think about a lightweight material. A 2300 Fahrenheit lightweight is going to be at its maximum strength leading up to 2300 Fahrenheit without affecting the thermal conductivity. But any higher than that, it's going to continue to densify. The strength might increase, but that's going to be done by reducing porosity, becoming less effective as an insulator above that temperature. And that's the entire reason you bought a lightweight in the first place. Also, from a design and insulation standpoint, we allow for a certain level of expansion and contraction with joints and casting certain size panels. If we allow the material to densify further, it will begin to crack because it's shrinking more than the panel will allow. Speaking of lightweights, Ryan, one insulating bricks like Green Therm or even high purity insulating bricks like Corundal LW have max use temperatures. How are those defined? Lightweight brick, they're pretty much in a category unto themselves. Um, this is because of the importance of the low densities and high porosities in the lightweight brick. They really need these characteristics in order to obtain low thermal conductivity and maintain their insulating capabilities. Lightweight brick, like most other brick, are typically fired during the manufacturing process. When they are reheated after manufacturing, either in service or in the lab for testing, they cannot shrink more than 2% of their original size, or they will lose a lot of the characteristics that make them insulate. Um, this can be described in the ASTM C155 standard. All right, so the easy questions are over. Let's get into the real meat of it now. The simple fact is that dense bricks, not insulating bricks, but dense bricks don't have max use temperature. Actually, I should strike that statement too, because there are actually some bricks that do have max use temperature. I think KX99 is one of those. They're not listed like the monos or the IFB. Instead, they're listed as something called PCE. What is that? Yeah, so PCE, um, it actually stands for pyrometric cone equivalent, and it can be commonly used to determine the maximum use temperature of specifically fire clay brick. Pretty much, there are standardized ceramic cones that melt at certain varying temperatures. A row of different cones can be placed on the brick and used to determine at which temperature the brick begins to deform or melt. Once the brick begins to deform or melt, whichever number of cone is melting at the same time um, can be matched with the brick. Then a PCE standard chart can be used to find what temperature the cone is supposed to melt at and begin to fail. This temperature would then correspond with the temperature the brick begins to fail, fail at and then could be described as the brick max temperature. The problem with this test is that it does not account for many different physical or chemical forces that the brick must withstand in service. We'll get into these a little bit later. Yeah, I, I love this test. I mean, to extrapolate on what you were saying before, as, as I read the standard, and granted, I'm not a smart man, Jenny, um, but as I read the standard, you actually have to make a pyrometric cone out of the brand that you're trying to test. So you have to take something like a KX99, crush it down into a particular particle size, and then press it into a cone set alongside all of these standard pyrometric cones and run them side by side. So first off, you're completely annihilating anything about particle size packing and, and the distribution of particles within your material. And B, not to slag off pyrometric cones too much, but just pulling up the cone chart, there are two columns. One shows the cone equivalent temperature when heated at 108 Fahrenheit per hour. The other shows the cone equivalent when heated to two, at 270 Fahrenheit an hour. So, for example, cone 31 is good to 3,022 Fahrenheit at 100 F an hour, but good to 3,054 Fahrenheit at 270 F an hour. I mean, first off, would you say that any materials are more refractory when heated faster? 
I'd say they perform worse. But the PCE test has a time variable to it since it's literally going with gravity. Somebody gets Sir Isaac Newton on the line here. Secondly, how many furnaces do you know that are using fire clay brick like KX99 at temperatures above 3,000 degrees? Because the data sheet for the KX99 shows it has a pyrometric cone equivalent of 33 to 34, meaning 3150 to 3200 Fahrenheit. Yeah, we're typically not seeing fire clay brick like KX99 used in applications above 3000 F. As we'll get into a little bit later, uh, the physical load on the brick can have a real effect on the max temperature of the brick. There's no anchors in brick systems like the, like the ones in monolithics. Um, because of this, brick exert more mechanical forces and pressures on each other during service, which can have an effect on their max service temperature. So before I ask my next, my next random question, I'll let you put two and two together to state the obvious. We have materials like KX99 and Clipper DP, those fire clay brick, that do show the pyrometric cone equivalents. Why don't we have that for higher aluminum materials like Corundal XD? Well, uh, for the most part, higher alumina brick don't show any sort of deformation at any temperature that can normally be reached in laboratory furnaces. So the PCE test really can't be performed. Even if it could, it wouldn't be very useful in most applications because once again, it doesn't account for many of the forces and mechanisms at play. So I guess the question that everyone's going to be asking though, well, if I can't trust the PCE number, what temperature can I use fire clay brick like KX99 up to? Normally, uh, we see these anywhere from about 1500 F up to like 22, 2300 degrees Fahrenheit max. Um, but really not much more than that. Um, we have different brick brands that aren't uh, fire clay based that we would recommend at higher temperatures. Yes. Yeah, so then we're getting into the brands, the Malite and Delucite brick, like Nike, like Eufaula, and then moving up to bauxite based brands like Aladdin 80. And then we're moving up to high purity alumina brands like Corundal XD, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. And that's, that's the span of, like you said, from 1800 Fahrenheit to, I don't know, what do you think? 3000? Yeah, I would, I would say anywhere from 1800 up, up to 3000, maybe, maybe a little bit higher than that. Um, we see Corundal XD used sometimes in, in temperatures a little over 3000 degrees, but then after that, you're going to need to get into some different raw materials. You're going to start seeing your chromia, your zirconia, um, things like that, not alumina silica based refractory. And that's going exact, exactly back to what you said before, is you increase your alumina content, you're increasing your refractoriness, your max use temperature. As you said before, the cement, it's the non-variable here because bricks don't have cement in them. But you know that, that just goes to show that the PCE test doesn't tell you much because it's telling you you can use it at 3150 at 45% alumina material. But in reality, anything around 3000, you're going to want those high purity alumina materials like Corundal XD, like tough line 95 DM, like HW Corundum. So like I said, not to slag off the test too much, but that's where it is. Yep, exactly. So that really shows the truth of it. The only ASTM test there is basically tells you when a brick will start to melt, but a lot happens before then, like Ryan said. So, I mean, another thing, like another opportunity to put it in perspective, how many miles can you drive a car before the car is undrivable? Sure, I might be able to take my Honda Civic generally further than I could take a Reliant Robin, but how many miles can it go? 200,000? 250,000? 300,000? I mean, there are cases where people have put over a million miles on their car, but does that mean that I could put 500,000 miles on my CRV? Maybe. 
Maybe not. There's a lot of variables that go into that number. How often does the car go into maintenance? Are you driving it through temperate weather? Or do you live in Buffalo where roads are more salt than asphalt? Right? Help me tie this back into refractories. What are some use cases where someone might be concerned about max use temperature, but really they're ignoring the more important variables? Well, first of all, Griffin, I'm going to take some offense to that Buffalo comment, being from <laughs> Buffalo myself. I'm not going to deny it, but I'm going to take some offense to it. Um, yeah, so tying this back into refractory. Um, one good application that, that we see this can be in the space launch pads. Space launch pads are pretty unique because they're not firing a contiguous temperature over a long period of time. It's pretty much flame at very high temperatures that we don't even really know. Could be anywhere from 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit up to, I don't know, 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe even higher than that. But in the refractory world, it's for a very short period of time. So we need something that can withstand these high temperatures, but that might not even be the most important. Um, what's going to be really important here is whether your refractory can withstand thermal shock. You're going from pretty much room temperature up to some extremely high temperature in a very short period of time before being cooled off basically into an ambient atmosphere, maybe even with some water right after liftoff. So there's different mechanisms at play here, not just maximum temperature that we really need to be concerned about. Yeah, I think in that in the space shuttle episode we did with John Bortner and Corey Forrester, I posed the question to Corey, how hot are the refractories getting? Corey's excellent response was, if the scientists don't know, then I'm not even going to pose a guess. But at the end of the day, because like you said, the temperatures are so quick, the question is, is how hot are the refractories even getting, right? How fast can you push heat into a brick before the whole thing's over, right? Yeah, exactly. And and that's how, how fast you can do that. That's going to be thermal shock. Um, yep. that's, that's a destructive mechanism that we see in this application all the time. It's not just that maximum temperature. It's how fast we can get that heat into that refractory. How far is it penetrating? And then will the refractory survive the thermal shock? And the erosive forces of a rocket that is strong enough to push it into space while also pushing into the refractory as well. Exactly. Yep. A lot of different destructive mechanisms at force here, not just temperature. Another example I can think of is, is of course, the one I love talking about way too much is gasification. I mean, it's a, I guess you could say it's a fairly new technology. So researchers are always pushing us to our limits. But the limit that really doesn't mean as much as those researchers want to believe is what is the bricks max use temperature? These things run higher than all get up, but it's the slag at those temperatures that are the problem. Above a certain temperature, that feedstock will become ash, which then melts into a slag and becomes very low viscosity. That low viscosity slag will penetrate into the pores of the refractory and cause reactions that can lead to densification of the brick. That densification is caused by reactions with the slag, not densification due to high temperatures in the unit. But it can lead to spalling, which exposes new refractory to further attack. So yes, the temperature of the vessel matters, and the mean temperature of the refractory matters since higher temperatures will lead to deeper penetration, but all of that can happen well below any temperature that would even come close to what you would consider the max use temperature of a brick. Here, we need to look at instead the porosity. Um, maybe we do some physical or theoretical testing of the refractory's reactivity against particular slags. But issues in this lining will happen, like I said, well below any theoretical max use temperatures of the refractory lining. Um, you got another one for me, dude? 
The next example I, I can think of really pertains to all industries, but I'm going to focus more on crematories. So before I start this example, it's very important to make a, a distinction in temperature. Your flame temperature is not exactly going to be your operating temperature. This causes a lot of confusion when um, we have customers asking us questions about max use temperatures. If you have a flame that, say, is at 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit, your operating temperature is not going to be 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, it'll probably be somewhere between that low 2,000, maybe even the, the mid 2,000 degree Fahrenheit range, depending on application, vessel size, and a wide variety of factors. So, for example, in crematories, normally the operating temperature is going to be around 1,400 to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, which is significantly lower than the burner temperature. Because of this, sometimes we get some questions about which brick can we use to withstand these high temperatures, 3,000 degrees or something. And we, because of HWI's experience in the industry and our understanding of operating temperatures, um, as well as the destructive mechanisms that play in, the cre in, in crematory units, we'll be able to provide different brick that we know will be able to withstand that 1,400 to 1,800 degree Fahrenheit, as well as the different destructive mechanisms present in crematory units, um, which really include a lot of alkalis as well as thermal cycling, because these units are turned off and on pretty much daily. But yeah, we, so we're going to recommend a brick that not necessarily needs to be 3000 degrees Fahrenheit resistant, um, more something that can withstand that operating temperature, as well as the alkalis present and the thermal cycling present in these units. Now, I caught wind of this little rule of thumb on another talk recently. Uh, every 100 degrees Fahrenheit you increase, the reaction rate of a chemical process doubles. So I don't know how widespread that rule of thumb is, um, but still it's a nice little thing to keep in mind because at the end of the day, heat is your driver for these things. But if we're in a chemical environment, we're going to be worrying more about the potential chemical attack on the refractory long before we're worried about the brick being attacked by thermal mechanisms themselves. I'm sure the same can be said for a lot of other units with a lot of thermally assisted destructive mechanisms. Right? what do I mean by thermally assisted destructive mechanisms? Yeah, Griffin, definitely. Um, so kind of like what we were just talking about, the different destructive mechanisms at play in different applications, there's many destructive mechanisms that become more vicious as the temperature of the application increases. So this can include abrasion, slag attack, molten metal penetration, which all can play a huge part of brick and refractory failure, especially at high temperatures. Um, another one to really pay attention to is thermal cycling and thermal shock. Um, these also can play a, a huge role in brick failure especially if the temperature change is very drastic and happens very fast. All these destructive mechanisms make it very challenging to understand and find true brick maximum temperature. But there must be some examples or industries where true thermal capabilities matter, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple, but some most of them are pretty far and few between. Two pretty good examples could be the carbon black industry as well as technical ceramics. A lot of the refractory in these applications are made using zirconia, due to its ability to withstand such extreme temperatures that these refractories are seeing. Even in the carbon black industry, though, they still deal with thermal shock, as well as some alkali attack from the crude oil they're processing. But high temperatures are still going to be the most important to them. Yeah, I don't know about you, but you seem like some pretty unique cases. I mean, as the app specialist for technical ceramics, I'm seeing most technical ceramics kilns are lined with refractory ceramic fiber, not brick. So, I mean, I really do question how often... Are there even furnaces that are lined with brick and not RCF and still run as hot as these applications are deeming with nothing going on in that furnace 
foot heat. And besides, I mean, in those cases where we are looking at high temperatures, no external destructive mechanisms, and brick line furnaces, are we really looking at the max use temperature or what else we what else could we be looking at here? Well, I mean, when we're going in and we're we're trying to figure out brick end of lifetime, um, we're looking for a variety of different signs. Uh, we could be looking for spalling, um, loss of lining thickness, even the brick turning a little soft and losing a lot of its physical properties. Um, one physical force that we really haven't covered that can lead that can lead to a lot of these cases is creep. Creep can be classified as deformation of a material under a constant load at high temperatures. Since brick are normally laid next to or on top of one another. Their loads are acting on uh, on one another, um, and this really causes creep and most brick failure we see when there's not a lot of destructive mechanisms, other destructive mechanisms present. Yeah, as much as I want to, uh, I'll try and save the scientific explanation for another time because that can be about as much fun as staring into the sun for some people. But before we wrap this up and go cool off in the pool, I will say that we actually do have data points on creep for many data sheets. Ryan, can you uh, illuminate us on what the various creep tests we have are? Yeah, Griffin. So pretty much there's two basic tests we run in the lab to help us quantify these mechanical forces. To understand creep, you first really need to understand refractoriness under load or the RUL test. RUL is a hot strength test, which a standard size sample is placed in a small testing furnace. A specified load is applied to that sample and then heated up at a specified rate at all sides to a maximum temperature. During the heating, the height of the sample is measured continuously to, to provide a graph that describes how much the sample expands during heating and at what temperature it begins to subside. The creep test adds a hold of 100 hours to the end of an RUL test. The specified load is still constant during this time. The test provides accurate information on how a brick will hold up in service at a specified temperature under a constant load. The data is then extrapolated from these tests to understand at what temperature mechanical failure may occur which then can be used to determine a brick maximum temperature range for in-service. So, I mean, do you have any data points that, at the top of your mind that, that could really compare? Like we were talking earlier about PCE and a material being good up to 3,200. But then we look at the RUL, the refractory dust under load, where you take that same material and you add, what is it, 25 PSI, yep. usually a material. Yep. What kind of what kind of RULs are we seeing on on materials like like fire clays, like KX99. Do we have data on that? Yeah, we do have data on that. And a lot of that shows that you're going to see a lot of some failure in that temperature range we described earlier. Right. Which is why we, we really don't recommend using brick like that um, at higher temperatures than that, even though the PCE shows that they can withstand temperatures over 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like you said earlier, like brick aren't usually anchored to the wall like a monolithic is. I mean, there are examples where you use tieback bricks and things like that, but generally these brick are exerting an extreme amount of force downward on each other, less so than monolithics would be because of their anchoring. So, you know, when we're looking at a brick's max use temperature, we're looking at how it will survive at high temperatures under load, not just in gravity with air as a cone. <laughs> Exactly. And that's why it's important to really understand what your application is, what destructive mechanisms are in play, which mechanical forces, chemical forces are at play in your application. So that way we can better understand which refractory you need, what the brick max temperature would be, what, what brick we, we can use effectively in your unit and in your application. 
So yeah, a, a lot to unpack here on this hot and sunny day. It's never easy to tell people that they're barking up the wrong tree, but max use temperature is just one of those properties that doesn't say much, especially when it comes to brick. Heat is not the enemy. Heat is the driver that the enemy uses to do damage, whether that be chemical attack, mechanical abrasion, or other thermal mechanisms like creep or thermal shock. Thank you, Ryan, for taking the time to dig into it with me. If you'd like to talk more about what you're seeing on technical data sheets or the many destructive mechanisms in the refractory industry, reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. And be sure to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications, you know, the, the holy trinity. But no matter what, let's get out of this heat and go enjoy the summer. Thanks for listening.